Uh, I'm here today with Timothy Parsons, who is a professor at Washington University uh, in St. Louis, professor of history and African studies. And uh, I, was, uh, I also attended school here, and he was my history advisor and taught several of my history classes. He's also the author of uh, The Rule of Empires. And uh, one of the things uh, in your book that you talk about is the sort of myth that people have that uh, empires are beneficial. Why is it that people tend to think that? Well, it really depends on who you're talking about. There's a certain kind of wishful thinking that gets attached to empires, and, and there's, two, there's two schools of thought on people who engage in that wishful thinking. Some of them, but as I argue in the book, is self-serving. Um, it's a cover for um, pursuing self-interest, but since we, have, we live in a liberal democratic society, and the, the big empires of the 20th century were produced by liberal democracies, Britain and France, they had to justify conquest and rule as the basis of not just self-serving um, national self-interest, but it was for the good of the uh, people who were being conquered and then ruled. The reason why that argument has some traction is because people want to believe that hard power can be used creatively. They want to believe that if we can just tell people what to do, we know what's best, and, and because we know what's best, and if we have the capacity to force people to do what we say, we can do a lot of good in the world. And that's one of the reasons why empires, at least in the 20th century, were born of good intentions, um, but not necessarily um, underlying good intentions. All right, so you, you're, uh, you hint there at uh, the idea that a lot of these empires, where they have good intentions, don't always end up uh, benefiting the people that they're supposedly designed to help. Mm -hmm. So who typically uh, loses out on these empires? Well, the people who are conquered. Um, now, the people who are conquered, we shouldn't say that as everybody loses out because, and this is one of the things, as, as you mentioned and as you know from um, your time here, is I'm a historian of Africa. And so I came to empire from looking at it from the perspective of subject Africans. I'm a social historian, and social historians are interested in the daily lived experience of ordinary people. But what I found in writing the book and looking at a wide variety of case studies is that this is a theme that runs throughout, even going all the way back to ancient Rome and continues up until the 20th century, is that empires are not as powerful as they appear, and that the only can really, uh, imperial conquerors can only govern is if they can find allies among the local population. So those allies benefit. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I included France, Nazi-occupied France, as a case study because in Nazi-occupied France, and the Germans did rule France as an, as an imperial conquest, they also relied on Frenchmen to help them govern. They wouldn't have been able to without it. But we now have a word for that. It's called collaboration, and that is considered to be treason. Um, but empires can only work that way. So they benefit, but the vast majority of people, particularly because for empires, goes back to your earlier question, to justify imperial rule and make it look humane, you have to depict the people you've conquered as in somehow in, in need of help. And that means you have to depict them as backwards, you have to stigmatize them as less developed, less modern, and once you do that, you open them up for exploitation. So that's one of the reasons why subject peoples usually are on the losing end of empires. Well, yeah, and in your book it seems that it, uh, it's also not exactly the case that all the people within the, the metropole, the people that do the conquering, uh, not, they don't always benefit either. Yeah, great question. And there's a big debate um, in, among economic historians 
as to whether, let's take Britain as an example, whether the British taxpayer, the metropolitan British taxpayer, you know, say a person living in Birmingham paying his taxes in, say, 1930, benefited from the fact that Britain had a global empire. Because if you look at the cost of ruling these empires, they actually um, generated relatively few um, profits for the nation, if you look at a national balance sheet. However, and this is again a theme that I was really interested to see runs throughout empires, is that there are, what should we call them, special interests. Um, in other words, segments of the population that, that um, get quite wealthy um, by participating in these imperial projects. Now, in the early empires, it was just flat out looting. I have um, an example of the Spanish in the, the Andes with Pizarro, who just, uh, he and the conquistadors carried off enormous amounts of treasure. But by the 20th century, it was more sophisticated. Um, it, you had people like Cecil Rhodes, who uh, es essentially his chartered company in South Africa, the British uh, so South African company, he made enormous profits. Um, and you can move it down even further to uh, uh, the British Empire was called outdoor relief for the ruling class, <laughs> and outdoor relief being a euphemism for welfare. And so it created a lot of good paying jobs for upper middle class people. Um, the, the main people who staffed the British colonial service were uh, graduates of Oxford and Cambridge. So how you define special interest, it cannot, it's not just the, the Cecil Rhodeses of the world, it's, it's also, it, it expands out, but it's a small segment of the society that sponsors the empire. And one of the questions I wrestle with in the book is, is the American occupation of Iraq, does that fall under the category of an empire? And, but if you look at it that way, then we have the Halliburtons and the um, the other groups that got extremely wealthy um, uh, did quite well by essentially supplying various aspects of the American occupation, but I think we can all agree from the standpoint of the American taxpayer, the, the occupation was uh, um, an enormous drain. Right. One thing that struck me is uh, one of the people who did get extremely wealthy from Empire, uh, Robert Clive, mm -hmm. uh, even he didn't, still didn't really end up well. Uh, would you could you uh, tell the story of Robert Clive a little bit? Yeah, we can throw Warren Hastings in there too. You're referring to two of the employees of the British South Africa Company, excuse me, not British South Africa, British East India Company, and that's one of the things that Americans might reading the book might find surprising is that the the Great Indian Empire was not set up by the British Crown. It was set up by a private company uh, with its own private army and. And Clive and Hastings were two of the employees who enriched themselves. Um, I suppose you'd call it corruption. I mean, they were they they essentially governed Bengal, which is the the uh, part of India that that they were where they were stationed, um, as Indian rulers and collected. To, essentially, they took over the tax collection system of the Mughal Empire, um, and they became known in in Britain as Nabobs, which was a um, a corruption of Nawab, and it was a derogatory term. And one of the, you're right in saying it ended badly because, and this is one of the fears of empires, is that it produces these powerful people out in the empire. Um, G Julius Caesar is a good example. I mean, he becomes very wealthy, powerful in Gaul, and goes back and sets himself up as emperor. And they were mindful of this in late 18th century Britain. The idea that these people had become so powerful that they were going to corrupt metropolitan politics. And that's why Edmund Burke actually bought, brought charges against Hastings for corruption in India. But it wasn't just political corruption they were, they were concerned about. They were also worried that these guys had become too Indian, had become too Asian, and they were bringing back all these Asian vices that were going to contaminate English politics. 
Um, and that's a theme, though, the fear of, of the successful empire builder that, again, runs throughout these case studies. So, for example, Pizarro was seen by the Spanish aristocracy, which he desperately wanted to join, as an upstart. And even Hannah Arendt, um, she was a bit off, but one of her theories was is that the reason for the rise of Nazism is that essentially in Britain, in France, they exported these nefarious guys to the colonies and that Germany couldn't do that, so they stayed at home and you know, became national socialists. That doesn't bear up very well historically, but what it does do is it speaks to this fear of empires. It's interesting. Uh, one of the things that also I noticed, and I don't remember if you ever really made it explicit in the book, but the uh, the empires that you chose to discuss seem sort of uh, designed to show that uh, the conquerors become the conquered and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, to some degree, and I'll confess that the case studies are, seem kind of random, um, and that that was the rationale. And that um, so, for example, the the Romans conquer the Britons and treat them as a tribal people, and then the, the, their descendants are big empire builders themselves. Napoleon is one of the case studies. He conquers Italy, um, but then the, the French get a taste of, of imperial rule from the Germans, and it runs back and forth like that. But one of the arguments I also would make is that the case studies don't matter. I mean, in other words, I think you could choose almost any empire you wanted to, and, and the the fundamental structures are common to all of them. What does change, and this is one of the arguments I make in the book about the case studies, is that imperial lifespans get shorter and shorter and shorter because of changes in technology, because of the advent of nationalism and, and globalization. Uh, I basically end the book by concluding we don't have any empires anymore because they're just simply not feasible, not in the, the strict definition of the term. It definitely seemed to me that uh, the the big thing you seem to focus on is that uh, the change in identity and how that uh, evolved over time. Can you uh, address how the shift from local to uh, to national identity has pretty much put an end to empire? Yeah, that's a great question too. I mean, it goes back to this this term that I brought up earlier, collaboration. Collaboration before the Nazi occupation of France was a benign term. You and I would work together. We would collaborate. Um, now it's a euphemism for treason, and the reason is because there's now larger identities, the idea of a French state. So if you, if you cooperate with a conqueror, you are betraying that larger identity. But one of the reasons, and this is what I would argue about how, even though I see commonalities through my case studies, is that I'm not saying that time stands still. The Roman Empire is depicted as being so successful because it was so powerful and it was so gifted but in reality, I argue that it was actually relatively weak, and it survived for so long because people really thought in terms of the village. Um, so a foreign country was the other side of the hill, or maybe the other side of three hills down the road, which meant that when you were conquering areas, you could play one village off against another. And it was there's nothing wrong with that, because the people on the other side of the hill might well be your enemies. Um, so one of the... The reasons I, one of the arguments I make in the book is that as identities become bigger and more, more coherent, um, and I agree with Benedict Anderson this, I think it has a lot to do with print culture, um, then you and I consider ourselves Americans and we consider we have something in common with people that we've never met and never will meet, um, largely because we of the media. We, we, can, we have these larger, and they're fictions, but you know, we feel that we have this common identity. That's what makes empire unsustainable today, because you can't get these allies you need to make the imperial system work. 
And even in the, the great British empires of the 20th century, which are held up by imperial apologists as being good role models, they're really short-lived if you compare them to the empires of history. I mean, in, in, in Africa, the, the, the empires born of the new imperialism lasted 70, 80 years. You bring up uh, the weakness of uh, the Roman Empire, and uh, one thing that runs throughout your book is that a lot of the empires are only, you know, strong, seemingly strong, and they're actually very vulnerable to other conquest. Uh, so, can you explain how it is that an empire which has all this great military might can much more easily be conquered than, say, a small stateless society? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question too. It also shows that you remember your African history. Um, in the sense that once an empire, an empire has done the, the dirty work of conquering a, a whole range of peoples, and they may be from different societies, and then establishing systems of alien rule um, for taxation purposes, for law, then it's relatively easy for another power to come in and just take over that superstructure and rule through it. That's how we talked about Clive and Hastings. That's how they... The, how a, a British commercial company, which actually started off very weak, I mean, the, the Dutch East India Company actually was much more powerful, that's how they got so strong. They basically stepped into the shoes of the Mughal emperors, as did the uh, Spanish conquistadors in the Incan Empire. The Incans were a rather nasty empire themselves. So that's one of these, and ironically is, if we're using the African example, stateless societies, which uh, Western imperialists thought as a sign of primitiveness because so they weren't, these stateless societies weren't anarchies, they were simply societies where the centers of authority were diffuse, were notoriously hard to conquer because you had to conquer every single village. There wasn't one overarching system that you could simply take over. Uh, so this question uh, sort of uh, goes off the book, not really uh, something you can answer just by the material in there, but one thing that uh, I sort of wish you had discussed more in it is that the idea that nation states are inherently imperial, that mm -hmm. you know, in order to build a nation state, you have to, some of those people are going to be treated almost as an imperial subjects. Uh, for instance, you talk a lot about the uh, Napoleon subjugation of the Vendee. Mm -hmm. uh, am I pronouncing that correctly? I, I think so. Okay. I'm not an Italian speaker either, so, or the, the, uh, a French speaker, so we'll, All right. we'll go but, to that. But yeah, so uh, can you address sort of, a, is that fairly accurate to say that most nation-states are, in essence, imperial? Well, that is a great question. It is, a, it is one that I re wrestle with the book, and it's one that I had not planned on wrestling with. Um, because you're right. What, if you look at the history of nation-building, it does look a lot like empire-building. In other words, it's conquering a lot of different localities with different cultures, maybe even different languages, um, different traditions and imposing upon them a new identity and oftentimes, and you alluded to, um, it began with, with the French revolutionaries and was continued by Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon spent a lot of time in western France um, doing really brutal acts to people who didn't, who Bretons and other, other um, uh, cultures in western France who didn't want to see themselves as that kind of Frenchman. But here's the, the difference, and this is one of the things that I, uh, I tried to make sharper in the book, and I, maybe, I, maybe it could be even clearer, is that the end result are two different things. Because the end result of the Western nation-state is a citizen, and a citizen with rights. And, and for all of the violence that is inherent in nation-building, the end result is you get to place demands on the state. We have the idea of the social contract. Um, so the state is more invasive, but at the same time it's under controls. The, the, the end product of empire building is a subject with no rights at all. 
um, and, and is a perpetual subject. Any empire that allows its subjects to become citizens is an empire that will disappear. Um, because the whole purpose of an empire is permanent subjugation with no chance of assimilation. And that's one of the reasons why empires, particularly the last batch of empires, made so much of race. Um, because race meant, particularly a biological definition of race, meant that assimilation was fundamentally incompatible, which is again a difference from the earlier empires, which were, did eventually assimilate some, some elements of their subject people. So to go back to your original question, nation building while violent and using some of the same tools of empire building produced citizens, empire building produced subjects. Right. Uh, so this will be my last question, but I sort of want to touch on the uh, what you're talking about there with uh, if an empire allows its subjects to become citizens. Mm-hmm. Throughout the book, it seemed like there was this empires had to walk this tightrope between uh, allowing people to have the benefits of citizenship uh, and allowing them some way into the imperial fold and still being able to exploit them. And, you know, on one hand, if you provoke them too much, they'll rebel. And on the other, uh, you basically have no one left to give you tax revenue. Yeah, that's the fine line. You need these allies. I mean, to, it was the historian John Lonsdale, who's a historian of East Africa, said very, I thought, very eloquently, to exercise power, you had to share it. Um, and to share it means you have to share some benefits. Um, and this goes back to the question, though, of identity. That's easier to do when identities are local, and there's no question of assimilation and that sort of thing. But when you get into the 20th century, it's a, it's, it, it, when you have this concept, we have bigger identities, and you have this ideal of citizenship, it's virtually impossible to maintain that balance. And that's one of the fundamental reasons why empires are unsustainable. And it's funny, I was listening to um, a discussion of President Obama's uh, position that he took on, on a Palestinian state last week in his big speech. And it really occurs to me that the Palestinian example is a good one, um, because certainly Israel contains some elements of an empire and some elements that are not an empire. So in other words, Palestinians in the state of Israel are Israeli citizens. Um, but Palestinians in the West Bank and the, uh, the other territories are subjects. And the very fact that they've, this is a generational struggle, um, that they have, have not been, they, they, they reject their subjecthood and they do so violently. That's one of the kind of factors that makes empires unsustainable and why they've disappeared. And it's also worth pointing out that no, n- no institution today actually admits to being an empire. Even, even Britain, which still has imperial possessions and still has imperial orders, really, I mean, it it's really doesn't behave as an empire anymore. It's, it certainly has at least become a dirty word, uh, whether that's made people less likely to engage in imperial practices, I, I guess is another question. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, uh, thank you so much for talking to me today, and uh, good luck with your uh, future work. Happy to do it, Jen.